Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Jonathan Banks, Geothermics Research Associate at the University of Alberta. We'll be discussing the geothermal reservoirs in Alberta with reference to his study, Deep Dive Analysis of the Best Geothermal Reservoir for Commercial Development in Alberta. Final report. Some highlights include hot Devonian reefs. We're rocking out today with Jonathan Banks. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi, Jonathan, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking a little bit here about the geothermal work that you're doing at the University of Alberta. And the paper that you wrote, the deep dive analysis of the best geothermal reservoirs for commercial development in Alberta, was from 2017-2018. And what kind of expansion has your team been doing since then? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to apologize to the um, Canadian public for that clunky title. (laughs) I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah, so that was sort of the beginning of a rapid expansion of our research group at the University of Alberta around the time when that paper was published. And as I mentioned in our little pregame show here, that was a technical report that we wrote for Alberta Innovates. We also have a version of that paper that was published as a peer-reviewed scientific paper in the journal Geothermics in 2018. So I'd be happy to send you a copy of that as well. And right around the time that that was published, the University of Alberta was the recipient of a very large federal grant through what's called the Canada First Research Excellence Fund, or CFRF. And that was a $75 million grant that the University of Alberta got for exploring what we branded locally as future energy systems. And so we were able to ride the coattails of that publication that we're talking about today to receive also a significant uh, portion of funding from that future energy systems grant. And so we were able to turn that into many personnel, postdocs, PhD students. I'm a research associate. We had anywhere between seven and 10 faculty members at the university involved in our geothermal energy research through that group. Now, the specific projects that I've been involved in through that grant, which have been focused on brownfield development and repurposing existing oil and gas infrastructure in Alberta for geothermal use. Uh, That project's actually winding down, so uh, we don't have as many people working in that area of research as we used to, but we still have a lot of people working in higher temperature geothermal resources in British Columbia and more tectonically active areas. And we have people working on the engineering side of geothermal energy development in terms of novel ways to create electricity with lower temperature geothermal resources or novel ways to use the heat only uh, of geothermal resources without having to convert it to electricity. And we also have a whole group of people that deal with socioeconomic and political issues surrounding transitions to a renewable economy with a a focus on geothermal energy. So that's a bit of our research group at the university in a nutshell. It's a big group from the sounds of it. And you kind of started with this and then you expanded and now you're looking at how to do the transition. Is part of why you're focused more on BC because they're further along with their regulations or is the geology different there? The geology is definitely different there. And from my perspective as a geologist, that's what really makes it different or makes it interesting as uh, as a research topic, I should say. And the differences, of course, don't stop there. Uh, BC is far ahead of the game 
as having uh, geothermal resource legislation on the books. And that's been something that's held up geothermal development in Alberta. British Columbia, on the other hand, has a little bit of a disadvantage in that they do not have the real pressing need for renewable resources that Alberta has because they're already getting the overwhelming majority of their electricity from hydropower, which I think it's fair to question whether or not hydropower is actually renewable, but it is certainly low carbon. Right. That makes so sense. BC has that advantage. BC is also in a particular situation where they don't really need the excess electricity right now. They need more space to distribute the electricity uh, that they have. So there are a number of very unique challenges from municipality to municipality um, that make actually geothermal energy research a truly interdisciplinary research topic. So speaking of municipalities, in this study, there were four different ones that you looked at. You looked at the wireline logs and the core in those. So which districts did you study and how did you pick those as the ones to focus on? Yeah, so I I mentioned before that this particular research project was the start of a big explosion of geothermal research at the university. This study was also built on a lot of research um, that came before us at the University of Alberta. Specifically, I'd like to uh, call out the research of Jacek Majorovich, who's an, an elderly researcher um, who researched the heat flow within the Western Canadian sedimentary basin for decades. Um, and so, and when I say heat flow, I mean how much heat there is and how it moves within the basin. And of course, and the basin, of course, is the geologic resource that all of our hydrocarbons in Alberta are produced out of. And this is a, un- a somewhat of a unique geothermal setting. Dr. Majorovich started studying this as a geophysicist, just studying heat flow in the upper crust. And that, you know, the, the direct application of that, of course, is for geothermal energy development. So we took a lot of his work, a lot of his temperature data processing, and also a lot of his identifying of subsurface aquifers from previous work to select our targets. So one thing we know from the research and we know from general geology that as a basin gets deeper, you have access to higher temperatures. That's simply an artifact of the geothermal gradient. So the geothermal gradient is for every meter, for every kilometer you drill down, the temperature increases at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, The continental average is about 30 degrees per kilometer. And so we want to start looking in the deepest parts of the basin. That's where we're going to find the highest temperatures. And then on top of that, we overlaid what are the known aquifers there? Because in a geothermal resource, you need two things. You need the heat, but you also need a fluid to bring that heat to the surface. And that's typically water. Um, And so we look for maps where high temperature gradients overlay known aquifers. And that's where, and then from there, we added the third dimension where, well, who's going to use this, right? We don't need to produce geothermal power for the bison. And so then we started drawing circles around municipalities where that temperature and those aquifers overlapped. Yeah, I was really focused on powering the town and whether or not that was feasible, which was neat because then as soon as you know if the geothermal capacity is in the ground, it's a matter of, you know, can you commercialize it? Can you get it out? Can you use it to power the town? And we can go through um, what your results were on that. Um, But speaking of the temperatures and looking at the deep ones, you looked for temperatures of greater than 100 degrees Celsius, deeper than 1500 meters. So how did you find these water temperatures of the aquifers? Yeah, so when wells are drilled, there's always a thermometer that's sent down the hole with the drill rig. And so 
those temperatures are not accurate uh, because the drilling mud and the drilling fluids artificially cool down the formation in the vicinity of where the drilling is happening. But if you have subsequent temperature measurements where you have a drill log that has a temperature measurement in the time since circulation on it, if you have more than three of those data points, you can fit them to a curve that will what's called correct the bottom hole temperature. So many of those temperatures are what are known as uh, corrected bottom hole temperatures. And we use a method called the Horner method in case there are any hydrogeology geeks out there. And this is, you know, not 100% accurate, but it is the industry standard of accuracy. So it's reasonably accurate. In certain cases, we have what's called the drill stem test. And that is after the fact. So long after a well has been drilled and is in production, somebody might need to send some tools down hole to do some logging, to do some repairs, you know, to seam something up, add a packer, perforate a zone, something like that. And again, there will be a thermometer attached to that drill string as it goes down. And those temperatures are deemed pretty much accurate because there hasn't been anything in the area to disturb the temp the, the in situ temperature field. Um, and so there are a combination of the corrected bottom hole temperatures, and I'd say maybe a third of them are, are drill stem tests. So really, it'd be a great data coverage from all the wells that exist in these areas. Extraordinary. And that is a principle, I think, strategic advantage that Alberta has over the entire world in terms of developing low temperature geothermal resources is that we have billions of dollars of infrastructure in the ground that, you know, people have talked a lot about repurposing this infrastructure for geothermal production. And I think the case for that is widely overstated, but the value of having those wells in the ground and having relatively easy access to that data compared to a completely you know, opaque jurisdiction like Saudi Arabia or, you know, you name it. That is a large price tag of value, competitive advantage that Alberta has. So using all this oil and gas data and a commercial license for Geoscout, we've been able to get a very good picture of the geothermal setting of the Western Canadian sedimentary basin over the last 20 to 30 years, I'd say. Yeah, and you called it a low temperature geothermal setting. What would be considered like a, a high temperature geothermal? You know, like low temperature is 100 Celsius, I'm guessing, from what you looked at here. What's what's considered high? Yeah, well, we picked 100 degrees Celsius. That's sort of like the bottom end that you can use what's called binary cycle geothermal engine. So when you have lower temperature fluids and you want to boil water to run a turbine, there's a limited temperature gradient there. And so typically people will use a fluid that evaporates at a lower temperature, an alcohol, an organic solvent or refrigerant, something that boils at 60 degrees or 70 degrees Celsius rather than 100 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And so, but even to boil a fluid at that temperature, you need something that's still pretty hot, 100 degrees, 120 degrees even and that is a whole realm of geothermal technology called organic ranking cycles or binary cycle technology. Really higher temperature geothermal resources, the type you'd see in California or in Iceland or in southern Italy, New Zealand, Indonesia, the Philippines, places like this where there are volcanoes and whatnot. They just use a flash steam turbine. They're using a regular water cycle turbine. And so we don't have temperatures hot enough to do that in Alberta. So we look at other technologies. The temperature, then it sounds like it's more related to the technology that you're using, whether it's boiling water or a turbine, and that's where you get the cutoffs from? 
Well, uh, boiling water turns a turbine also in a nuclear plant or a coal plant. You know, they're just boiling lots of water to turn a turbine. It's a question of how much vapor phase can you develop because it's the expansion of the fluid from a liquid phase to a vapor phase that turns the blades of the turbine, which subsequently produces the electricity. So we want to maximize the amount of vapor we can produce with the resource. And one of the main points of research, and I think one of the main things that will move these lower temperature resources into real commercial prosperity is the ability to produce electricity with lower and lower temperature inputs. And then it's not only a matter of technology, then you also start to bump into real thermodynamic limitations. Very interesting. So in order to find these hotter waters, you found potential in 22 pools in the Devonian reefs. And I'm sure that number has gone way up over the years. But some of the formations of interest you identified were the Leduc, the Swan Hills, the Gilwood, and the Granite Wash. What was unique about these formations that made them perspective? Uh, So again, we we looked for the hottest ones we could find. Um, And so we wanted to go to the deepest parts of the basin. And so the Western Canadian sedimentary basin is Paleozoic strata overlying a Precambrian basin, a very uh, basement rather, very old Precambrian basement, the Canadian Shield. And so in many parts of the basin, the Devonian is the lowest strata that rests on top of the Canadian Shield. The Canadian Shield is not a great geothermal resource in and of itself, like because you can ask why not just drill deeper and deeper and deeper into the Shield. The shield is so old that its radiogenic properties have largely decayed. So once you get into the shield, the geothermal gradient drops off quite dramatically. Another issue is, is that we don't know how much water is in the Canadian shield and drilling through crystalline rocks as opposed to sedimentary rocks is a large added expense. So we stop at the bottom of the basin. In many places, the bottom of the basin is the Devonian. In some places, the bottom of the basin is Cambrian strata, Cambrian sandstones, but we didn't look at any of those in the study. Um, And then we picked these four formations because they were the deepest. There are some shallower Devonian strata that overlie the Leduc and the Duvernay shales, which kind of surround the Leduc reefs. And so we looked at two sandstones and we looked at two carbonates. And so we wanted to get that kind of balance. Uh, The Leduc and the Swan Hills are both carbonate formations. The Gilwood and the Granite Wash are both um, Solista Classic sandstones, largely detritus or uh, stuff that is eroded off of the Peace River Arch, which is a major geologic structure in northeast Alberta. Again, for you geologist nerds out there, we're getting <laughs> deep in the lingo. <laughs> exactly. Did you find a difference between the reservoirs that were carbonate versus sandstone? Was one better suited for geothermal than the other? Uh, Generally speaking, the carbonates are more promising, and that largely has to do with the thickness of the deposits. So the sandstone deposits often form these thin lenses and channels. And so um, in order to get the flow rates that we want, we really want a large producing zone. And in order to get, you know, a 100 or a 200 meter producing zone out of a formation that's only 15 or 20 meters thick means you need to drill down to the formation and then horizontally along it. And we have the technology to do that, I think, quite effectively in Alberta. But again, that's an expense. Whereas some of these uh, reefs, especially the pinnacle reefs of the Swan Hills and the Leduc, there can be 200 meters or more of a fairly porous um, formation of that. And if you don't believe me, you can just go out to Grassy Lakes and see for yourself how porous (laughs) the exposed Leduc formation is there. 
Yeah, that's a great hike. That's a good point too, that the vertical wells would be lower cost. And that's already one of the challenges that geothermal faces is getting the cost low enough. So that's one way to do it. Just start with the thicker reservoir. Seems quite uh, like a great way to do it, right? Yeah, our strategy has generally been, let's do the easiest stuff first. Mm -hmm. Uh, And understand that there's probably not any really easy stuff out there. Some of the maps you had, I really liked because you clipped them to the reefs. So the Leduc was clipped all that. It was probably the Sherwin edges or Geoscout edges of um, where the reef subcropped. So you could kind of see like, no, don't go look in the Ireton shale surrounding it. The water is not going to be flowing as freely. It's a shale. Yeah. So that was that was a good way of looking at it. And then one of the maps that you had in there as well, you had some standard ones like depth and then isopath, the bottom hole temperatures, porosity. You had a new one to me, the potentiometric surfaces, and I probably said that wrong. What exactly are those? Yeah, that's the potentiometric surface. Potentiometric. Um, and I do have to I do have to say that in that particular report, that is mislabeled. That is not what is shown there. What's shown there is the depth from the ground surface to the top of the water column in the well. And that is technically not necessarily the potentiometric surface, uh, be that as it may. The potentiometric surface is the height that a water will rise in, a, in an unconfined well. And so you drill a well, there's a perforated section, water will percolate into that well, and it'll fill up that well to a height commensurate with the pressure in the reservoir. This is a very important metric in developing a geothermal system because if, that wa- if it's not an artesian situation where under its own pressure, the water's coming all the way up to the ground surface, you need to pump the water. And that's what's called the parasitic load. Subsequent to this paper, we published a paper on calculating parasitic loads in geothermal systems using a gas field in British Columbia as a case study. And so a parasitic load is uh, you, you build a power plant. It's got a nameplate capacity. This power plant can generate, let's make up a number, five megawatts of geothermal power. But if it's got a 20% parasitic load, then, you know, you're only going to get four megawatts of power into the grid. And then the main contributor to a parasitic load is the pumping power required to circulate the fluid. So that graph, which we labeled the potentiometric surface, which is actually the depth from the water, from the ground surface to the water column is a proxy for understanding how much pumping power you might need in this area. And we saw areas where reservoirs are pressure depleted, under pressured, and we would need quite a lot of pumping power to move fluid. But we also did find areas where the reservoirs were overpressured. And if you were to drill a well, there'd be a, you know, a water spout 150 meters in the air. So overpressured would almost be a better target than underpressured. You'd need less to get it up. One would think so, but you also have to remember that in these basin-hosted systems, as opposed to a real geothermal hotspot like in Iceland I mentioned, where there's just an endless supply of, of hot groundwater, you need to put the fluid back in the reservoir. And so while it might seem nice from a producing perspective to have this big spurt of water, to push it back down into the reservoir then becomes a problematic. And that's where induced seismicity tends to happen. Induced seismicity are are human-made earthquakes. And in the geothermal world, globally, this has been a big problem. Albertans are not as allergic to induced seismicity as many other people in the world. A lot of people think induced seismicity is primarily caused by reservoir stimulation, colloquially known as fracking. Fracking can lead to induced seismicity, but it's not the main guilty party. The main guilty party is mismanaged wastewater injection wells. 
And so reservoirs become overpressured when wastewater is injected too quickly. And that's what can lead to induced seismicity quite quickly. So overpressure does seem good at the surface or at a surface level analysis, but it's not always better. Um, and I can say that uh, in the deep project in Saskatchewan, what they're trying to do, or I don't know if they're still trying to do this, but a concept that they had was to produce out of an overpressured reservoir into inject into an underpressured reservoir. So you're getting energy savings on both sides. I don't know how that's working for them. I hope it's working well. I encourage you to talk to those folks too. Yeah, that'll be a neat uh, need to check out. And there's probably some distance it has to travel between the two reservoirs too. So it could be a unique geologic setting that they have that, right? Yeah, every one of these potential projects has its own unique challenges. There's really no cookie cutter or modular solution. Mm -hmm. It's all designed to spec, I think, at this point. And thinking about the injection, there's probably lots of the engineering work that'd be similar to a water flood that you would need to do to make sure the pressures are correct for the geothermal hay. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned water flood because uh, one of the companies that we're working with through our future energy systems program is Razor Energy that operates out of the Swan Hills region of Alberta. And so they have an old oil field. I mean, the Swan Hills region is one of the most produced regions in Alberta. And so they're operating an oil field there where they're in the water flood. They've taken water over the last decades out of the lake there and done a water flood. And now they're at the point where they're reproducing the water flood at over a hundred degrees and like, you know, 95 to 98% of their emulsion is water, hot water. And so they're looking at using basically the waste heat from their oil production as a geothermal resource in and of itself. And so looking at fields that have had extensive water flooding, also CO2 flooding are both really within our wheelhouse for trying to co-produce hydrocarbons with geothermal energy as a sort of unique Alberta solution to at least reducing the uh, the local environmental impact of hydrocarbon productions as a transition um, it sounds like too it's the easiest way to do a geothermal development in Alberta right now is by doing you have to have the oil and gas rates you can't just get water rights for an interval so co-production seems to be logical well it's not only that and I will say and this is not at all to speak ill about any of the other projects that are, that are going on and you know from the university's perspective we want everybody to be successful and we, we think that a rising tide floats although in one successful project will help everybody else's project become successful by in, improving faith, I think. Yeah. Or, or gaining trust between the different components of the system. But I think that Razor Energy really is leading the pack as far as who is going to get geothermal power switched on in Alberta first. And this is because they own the asset, as you've mentioned, but they also have all of the infrastructure in the ground. So up to 40 or 50% of the geothermal power plant can just be in the drilling the wells. And these guys have already drilled the wells and the wells are already producing. So that much of their expense is already eliminated from their project. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, have a, they have a huge strategic advantage by being the owner operator of the field where they want to produce the geothermal energy. Yeah, you mentioned in here too that uh, instead of starting from scratch and drilling a geothermal well, there was a cost associated with that. But if you retrofit an oil and gas well, I think it was about a third to a half of the price. What does it take to retrofit an oil and gas well? Yeah, so that was a little bit of a different scenario. And I'm really happy that you picked up on that, a sign that you actually read the paper in quite some detail. (laughs) 
best. Yeah. So we looked at retrofitting a single well as what's called a um, um, a single seal deep borehole heat exchanger. So we would go take a suspended oil and gas well. We would put a packer in whatever zones have been produced up. So if a, a packer, for those of you at home, is something that seals off a perforated or an open hole section of the well to make the casing complete throughout the entire length of the borehole. So the well becomes sealed. Then we install a coiled tube in it where we pump down a fluid from the surface. And then the natural geothermal gradient of heats up the fluid in that either a coil tubing, or we also looked at tube and annulus designs. And these are papers that we've also published subsequent to this. This is not a way to produce geothermal electricity. This is a way to produce lower temperature heat for things like agriculture, snow melting. We looked at using, we worked with a guy in, um, is it Yellowhead County? No. What's the county between Yellowhead and Edmonton? Parkland County? Parkland County. Yeah. Who runs a 5,000 hectare cattle ranch. His biggest challenge was getting liquid water to the cows in the wintertime. And he could put an economic value on every degree we were able to make the water warmer. So he had a system that could get them four degrees Celsius water in the winter over these 5,000 hectares. But the cows need to heat that water up to their body temperature before they can use it. And that's burning calories. And those calories are costing him feed. And sometimes the cows can't make it and they die from the cold. I mean, it's minus 35 degrees out there for weeks on end. And cows are mammals. <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> And so we looked at using these single sealed boreholes to heat up his cattle water from four degrees Celsius to 15 degrees, degrees Celsius. And what we found was in today's economy or the economy in 2016, let's say, and I think gas has actually rebounded quite a, a bit. So it's probably comparable. What we found was that the cost of retrofitting that well and using that heat over a 30 year basis, the economic performance of that far exceeds the economic performance of buying gas to heat that water up, given the, the volatility of the gas markets and where it's expected to be in 30 years. And we looked at that first and foremost in the context of operating a tomato greenhouse as a case study, that it would be cheaper to run the uh, tomato greenhouse off of these single sealed bore, uh, heat exchangers than it would be off of building a gas turbine. The caveat to that is you need to have your greenhouse near where someone's got a well that they want to use for this purpose. Um, I saw your diagrams of the um, how you would run the geothermal heat underneath the greenhouse in there? And is that something people are actively doing right now? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, that is not at all a technological innovation. In the Netherlands, for example, they, in the Netherlands, I don't know, have you ever been to the Netherlands? Yes, I've been to um, all the tulip fields and the windmills. Yeah. And yeah, it's very pretty. Let's just call the Netherlands not a tropical paradise. Mm -hmm. But they grow coconuts, mangoes, avocados, you name it, inside all year round using geothermal resources. And this is something that's actually spreading quite wide all over Europe. Um, in Colorado, I know of a place where they're raising alligators, Florida's, Florida's finest, um, where they're raising alligators in the shadows of the Rocky Mountains using a geothermal resource to keep the alligator ponds warm. Um, in Iceland, Iceland's largest export are hothouse cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes. And they supply large portions of Europe with that stuff on a daily basis. So uh, geothermal fuel agriculture is a uh, winner all around the world. The economics of it are understood. The difficulty is, of course, getting food to market. But in Alberta and looking further to the north, 
this has, I think, a potential to become a major winner in that, you know, we've discussed one of the, one of the outcomes that we found in, in the study in question today was that there's enough geothermal power in Alberta to replace a sizable chunk of the coal that we burn for electricity. We could take whole municipalities off the grid entirely, heat and electricity using geothermal resources. And why, why aren't we doing that? Isn't that such a great idea? And it is a great idea, but that heat and power will not replace the tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that the hydrocarbon sector brings into the province. And that affects real people, you know, that affects real people's livelihoods and that, you know, that affects the economy of Alberta on a, on a macro scale. And so what can we do to replace that income is the question in Alberta. We know that we cannot rely on hydrocarbons forever. Uh, the people who are controlling the hydrocarbon production certainly know that, even if the government might not want to wake up to it as quickly as others. And so what type of revenue stream can we use to replace that? And I think that we need to take a much more serious look at agriculture. If you go to Boston Pizza on White Avenue in Edmonton and buy a, you know, a garden salad, that costs, I don't know, X amount of Canadian dollars. If you go to Whitehorse and go to the same pizza chain and buy the same salad, it costs twice as much. And that has to do with the cost of transporting food to the north. And so I'm talking about things that have real impact on real people in Canada, but also have serious economics associated with it. If Iceland can be, I mean, I'll also tell you, Europe gets a large portion of its flowers on a daily basis from Central Africa. You know, these are some of the things you don't really think about. Where do the flowers no. come from? Where do the cucumbers uh, come from? How do you do it more locally? Right. And it sounds like geothermal is one of those technologies that if it was desired, people could start doing that. Well, uh, people need to, uh, you know, a lot of times the pushback we always get on this is it's not economical, you know, and I've been I'm not an economist. I'm not I'm not a very politically active person, so I'm not, you know plugging plugging a part of a, any spectrum like this. But I will say that what we decide is economical is purely a social construct. Producing hydrocarbons at the rate that we do for the things that we produce hydrocarbons for would not be possible without tremendous ongoing government subsidies in the forms of favorable environmental regulation, favorable tax laws, investment policies, you know, if, if an average citizen were to pay the price at the pump for what it actually takes to get gas out of the ground, we would never have fossil fuels on mass in our society. So we are, we are at a shift of needing to decide what is value, really, not what is economical, but what is valuable. And I think along those lines, and I think one of the key successes that we had with this study is that we went to the municipalities. We didn't go to commercial developers. Uh, because the governments of the municipalities think generationally more so than your standard small to medium enterprise that really needs to keep their balance sheet clean on a quarter to quarter basis. And that's, that is an economic reality that they live in, but that's an economic reality that's been created by us. So moving not just geothermal energy, but sustainable energy in general forward really requires us as a society reevaluating what is uh, what is valuable? Sorry, that was my rant. For the oh, I you know I think it's one of those topics that's really featured right now. I know yesterday the Net Energy 2050 report came out with recommendations and guidelines in it, and it's long. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but definitely started, and it's uh, 
big topic of discussion right now. So it's good to kind of have some more input on it and take on it. That's for sure. So you found that there was enough geothermal energy that you could power some of these municipalities. I think you said Clearwater, Hinton, Greenview was a no. And then the fourth one was a yes as well. Do you know, are it, are any of these counties going to go ahead and do that? What, or would it take an operator to go in there? What would it take to get that happening? There is some movement going. So uh, Hinton is the one that we looked at most and the one that, I, in, my, in my opinion, continues to be the most promising. A company did come in and try to do a feed study, a front-end engineering and design study with the town of Hinton to repurpose some of the wells that they had within the town boundaries itself. That kind of went nowhere and unfortunately quenched the appetite for further studies for a little while. The really good geothermal resources around Hinton are not in the city boundaries. They're in Yellowhead County. So that's a little bit of a different conversation. But I definitely still think for greenfield geothermal development, that's definitely a winner. And there's more than enough geothermal energy there to provide heat and electricity to every single last resident of the town of Hinton and Edson as well as electricity to Jasper. Uh, That's part of it. You did yeah. do a lot of calculations. They reminded me of oil and gas in place calculations a bit, but then there was nine different equations you went through with different parameters and there was recoverable and pumpable <laughs> and just a huge list. Is it the same idea where there's a range of sensitivities on each parameter and it could be, you know, the volumes that you calculate, it could be higher, it could be lower, um, right. depending on the number of wells that you do put in there. How many, how big could these projects get? Not so big as far as the total megawatt size. And we, if for really large-scale development, we'd be looking at a, a number of smaller plants rather than any one single large plant. Uh, regarding those metrics themselves, and again, in the pregame show, we were discussing how a lot of what we did was methodology development. That particular methodology and those calculations is something that we've actually developed quite a lot since then. So we've taken these somewhat static models where there's fixed inputs, minimum mean and maximum. And we've developed real Monte Carlo simulations where somebody can come in and enter a range of of variables and the nature of the distribution of those variables. And a simulator will spit out 10,000 or 100,000 random outputs of that collection of variables that you put into the simulator. And it will create a histogram of most likely outcomes. And that is something that we're building into a product that we're creating at the University of Alberta in partnership with the Alberta Geological Survey called the Geothermal Atlas of the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin. So these maps that you've seen in this study, this was a preliminary thing. We've di- we've digitized this. We've made this all interactive so people can click on different regions and plug in the variables they want into a Monte Carlo simulator. So you can draw a picture on the map and say, I want to target this formation here's what I know about this formation, how much geothermal power is there. And so this is a product that we're looking to complete and pilot by the end of the summer. Well, as you were talking, it's really tempting to Google it to see if it was out. But end of the summer is when we should be Googling the geothermal atlas of Western Canada. But we do have a website that nobody ever visits. And so I did ask my GIS specialist to just upload the whole thing onto that website. I don't know if he did that. Let's not find out here live on the air. <laughs> yeah, we'll take a look later. No, that's yeah. a, that's really neat to know that that's in the process of being made, right? And that there's yeah. um, it's all the work is kind of already done. It doesn't sound like it needs to be replicated. It's just a matter of 
taking that and maybe zoning in on a pool and then figuring out how to develop it, right? So one of the things that you talked about in the paper was when the geothermal heat comes out, you can use it for, we talked about greenhouses. You can also use it for heating the houses, which we talked about with the counties and then the industrial processes. And then there was an interesting one you had about timber and grain drying. So is that something that's happening in Alberta? Uh, Timber drying and grain drying is certainly something that's happening in Alberta. What we found with timber drying, and again, uh, right outside of Hinton, like if you drive into Hinton on the Yellowhead, right there on your right as you pull into town, there's a huge timber mill and a huge timber kiln there. What we found with timber specifically is that actually it requires quite some high temperature. Timber kilns are typically operated at over 100 degrees Celsius. So that is not a good low temperature application for geothermal resources. And then a lot of times what happens with the timber mills is that they have the waste from the lumber production itself can be burned for fuel on site. So they have a low waste operation. So timber drying wasn't a top thing. Grain drying, any agricultural use. We also looked a lot at aquaponics and we also looked at like cascading use with like fish farms. And so, I mean, you live in Alberta. It's cold most of the time. So anything, anything that you can think of that requires heat, like whenever I drive around Calgary, for example, like if I'm going to Banff off the, off the Queen Elizabeth on, on the Stony Trail there, and you see all these housing developments going up, every single one of those housing developments could be heated with geothermal power instead of gas. Uh, we just don't have this mindset or we don't have this understanding. And we need to somehow make it make sense to the developer. And I was talking to a developer not all that long ago about, you know, if you're, if you're putting up a development that has, let's say, arbitrarily 100 single-family homes, if you take two of those lots off the market, so now you have 98 single-family homes, and you turn those two lots into a local geothermal power plant, not for electricity, but for heat, and then you roll the cost of those other two mortgages into everybody else's house and tell them they're getting free heat for the next 50 years, I mean, I'm making up, I'm making up numbers in this scenario, but there's got to be an economic case in there somewhere. Yeah. How far could it travel? Would it have to be directly in the neighborhood or could you build it? We see geothermal district heating systems in Europe. And I worked also in the geothermal industry in Germany for some years while I was doing my PhD. And so we see district heating networks that are 10 to 20 kilometers long, no problem. You know, the piping can be expensive if you put it in a vacuum sealed pipe. So there's a pipe inside of a vacuum sealed pipe you'll have very little heat loss over long distances. And so, so yeah, 10, kilo- 10 kilometers of piping, no problem. 20 kilometers, I think, is still quite doable. And that's probably part of why when you looked at the counties, you did about a 10 to 20 mile rate, kilometer radius around them. That so was part of it. The other, the other part of that is, uh, you know, how far do we want to run a high tension wire? So if we are producing elect- uh, electricity, especially transmission grade electricity. So a megawatt or more or something. I don't even know what the transmission grade electricity line is in Alberta anymore. You know, that can be a million dollars per kilometer. So we don't want to go too far away from where it needs to get to or too far away from where the line, the, the nearest connection is. Do you see this as being anything that could be exported in the future or it's going to be very localized? Well, the power, the heat cannot be exported. The heat has to be used locally. And I think the biggest economic upside and one of the biggest environmental upsides for Alberta and Western and Northern Canada is finding creative ways to use that heat. We did a study alongside with the study, which got published as a master's thesis that did uh, what's called an exergy analysis between using a certain amount of geothermal heat as electricity and using it as heat. And we compared 
So exergy is usable energy. It's energy minus entropy losses in whatever system that you have. And we compared the environmental and the economic performance of using a given amount, a given joule, amount of joules at a given temperature as electricity versus heat. And we found that both the economic and the environmental value of the heat was 10 times or more greater than the value of the electricity. For sure, we can sell, you can sell electricity produced in Canada to Florida, you know, or Mexico, or, you know, I think the grid even goes down to Central America now. Uh, but what you can really export, and I think what another huge economic upside for Alberta is as far as gross revenue for the province, is export technology and export know-how. Um, and that's another real area. And I think that's why the Alberta government has been interested in this for so long. They do see potentially a limited application directly in Alberta, but a huge opportunity for export technology and know-how. Mm, yeah. You started talking there a bit about the environmental impact that you see with geothermal. How does that compare to other energy developments? So all of, practically all of the greenhouse gas emissions and environmental damage associated with the geothermal power plant is in the construction of the plant. So land needs to be cleared. There's drilling. Drilling creates noise pollution. We had some issues. Uh, we did some geothermal test well drilling up in the middle of the Yukon, up by Ross River, for the Ross River First Nation. Dene Nation, should correct myself there, they're a Dena Nation, not a Dene Nation. Yeah, I've learned so much <laughs> doing this job. And so with the blessing and with the full involvement of the Yukon Geological Survey and the tribal elders there, we tried to drill two test wells, but we had to abandon one of them because many of the people in the community thought that the noise produced by the drill rig was going to have lasting damage on the elk migration routes. So these are things that people in Canada definitely need to be sensitive to, you know, right? Because that's not actually our land. That's their land. Is the noise from a drilling rig that you would do a geothermal well any different than an oil and gas well? No. And it's really interesting because we tried to have th these conversations with these people who are raising these complaints. And of course, from a scientific perspective, you know, there's an equation that will tell you how far away, how fast the noise from a drill rig dissipates and this is an exponential decay it's a squared function right they don't care you know they are not scientists they have other forms of knowing right and you know they told me straight up that they had a vision a tribal elder had a vision back in the 1950s that there was going to be a geothermal power plant in that valley and that's their form of knowing you know and so they wanted us to come in and confirm that vision using science not to you know hegemonize their knowledge system. And I think scientific researchers would be wise to be sensitive to indigenous cultural knowledge. Definitely. I've been yeah. working with an indigenous group a lot lately, and I have learned a lot from yeah. that experience, which is, yeah, you do need to take it, the landholders into consideration and what their wants and needs are and really work with them. And there's often large communities, like tons of people to talk to. You can't just talk to one person and call it Call it good. No, no, no. And we we saw this in Ross River. We've also seen this with some of our involvement with the Alexis and Nakota First Nation in Alberta, who've just been wonderful people to work with across the board. But back to the original question. So there's that. There's the the pollution involved with the construction of the plants. So there's fossil fuels involved with drilling and you know generators and all that stuff. Once the plant is up and running, there may be some gas emissions. Typically, we find a lot of nitrogen gas in these systems, which is harmless. There is some CO2 sometimes. On rare occasions, we will find uh, sulfur dioxides, sour gas, or uh, nitrogen oxides, which can be harmful. 
but they're not in large con concentrations. It's not something that you would need to wear a gas mask around a geothermal well or anything like that. We did have an incident with the geothermal plant that I was working at in Germany, where the plant itself was producing so much mineral scaling. We were producing highly saline water. And when it cooled down, it would precipitate a lot of oversaturated minerals. And one of the main minerals, and we see this in a lot of oil fields, is barite, barium sulfate. Barium sulfate is a useful industrial mineral. It's used in cosmetics. It's used in paint thinner. It's used in drywall. It's an additive in gasolines. And so we thought, and we were producing barite like the bejesus, you know, like buckets of barite, 55-gallon drums full of barite. And we thought, well, can we sell this for added economic benefit? But what we found was that when the barite crystallized out of the water, it incorporated all of the radium that was in the water into it. And so it became radioactive. And once a week, the German nuclear protection agency had to come out with their funky Ghostbuster Geiger counters and, you know, make sure. So there is some environmental risk there. But then the biggest, the real biggest environmental risk is ongoing noise pollution. The, the pumps can be loud, but this can be engineered around. For example, in Germany, in the suburb of, of Munich, there's a geothermal power plant right across the street from a shopping mall. And you would never know it's there because they've insulated it so well. And so as far as renewable resources are concerned, geothermal, much lower toxicity involved in the manufacturing of the plant compared to manufacturing the parts of a solar cell or a wind turbine, much smaller land surface area use per megawatt, almost negligible and practically no emissions. So also the other advantage to geothermal over other renewable solar and wind are solar and wind might have you know, given improvements over the last five years might have 30 to 40% capacity on their nameplate. So you install a 10 megawatt wind field, you might get three or four megawatts of power on, at any given moment. If you install a 10 megawatt geothermal plant, you're going to get nine to 9.5 megawatts of power. So the efficiency of a geothermal plant is much higher than any other renewable. So what do you see as being next? There's lots of developments in, you know, we know the geothermal potential is there, where it is. There's plants starting to be developed in Germany and Iceland and around the world, Saskatchewan. What do you see next for Alberta here? Well, I think the next year or two are going to be pivotal. There are a number of projects in the works, and I, uh, the government has certainly invested a lot of money in these projects. So I think that everybody's waiting to see what kind of return on investment people are going to get. And I think that's going to really decide what happens next. If two of the three or four projects that are out there are successful, I think we'll start to see a gradual boom in geothermal energy. If everybody falls flat on their face, I'm afraid that that may be the end of the conversation for a little while until some real new technology, real transformative technology comes on the market. Uh, what I would like to see and what I've, what I've been advocating publicly and privately is we have Emissions Reduction Alberta, which is a main vehicle for getting research funds into innovative thinkers. And they've done a number of grand challenges over the last years, you know, $50 million challenges for how to use captured and sequestered carbon. You know, they did a grand challenge on methane issues and so on and so forth. I would like to see them do a grand challenge on geothermal test well drilling. You know, this is direct investment in Alberta's economy. This is taking Alberta taxpayer money and putting it right back into the Alberta economy in a sector that is cash starved and desperately needs work. And so that's, I'm talking about the drilling industry, but the long-term upside of that is that the main financial risk we see in geothermal systems in Alberta is the cost of drilling wells. You know, the surface engineering, we are, Albertans are brilliant at surface engineering. 
world leaders for real. But the cost of drilling a new well is what scares serious venture capitalists away from investing. So it's not only, it's not that there's a lack of capital out there. There's so much capital out there. There's a lack of confidence in what people are putting their capital in. And so I think that if the government were to step forward a little bit, help these people out, say, hey, we have $50 million, we have $100 million to match test well drilling programs to try to reduce this risk, I think we would see a lot of investment in geothermal in Alberta over the next yeah. It's a years. It's a good way of looking at it, kind of have a competition to de-risk things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's that's capitalism, right? That's that's how government can breed a healthy free market. Exactly. So it's a win-win. And, I, and, you know, I also have to give a little bit of a shout out to the UCP who, you know, everybody in the renewable sector loves to poop on the UCP, usually for good reason. But the UCP did not back away from any funding the NDP gave to geothermal energy. So when the UCP took office, they pulled a lot of the CCIF funding that the NDP distributed. So the NDP put forward the climate change initiative, the platform, which generated a lot of revenue for renewable energy research. When the UCP came to power, they pulled a lot of that funding back, but they did not pull any funding back from geothermal. And the UCP was also able to finally get geothermal legislation across the finish line in Alberta. And I think it's you can easily make the case that a lot of the legislation they passed was you know, a naked appeasement to the oil and gas sector. But hey, you know, if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can fix it later if there are problems. So. I feel like you're a true expert in geothermal. You know, you know, understand the geology, you understand the legislation, you understand the rest of the world. So it has been an absolute pleasure learning yeah. from you about your thoughts and take on geothermal here. Yeah, thanks very much for having me and giving me a little bit of a platform to proselytize.